This is the current federal tax developments for the week of January the 9th, 2023. Current federal tax developments are brought to you by Capital Financial Education and by your state society of CPAs. I'm Ed Zollers, and we're talking to you this week from Phoenix again. And this week, actually, remember last week, the end of the week, the IRS went really crazy with issuing a lot of guidance. Well, it appears that was because they planned to take this week off. And aside from telling us this week that they're finally done issuing the refunds to people who had paid tax on unemployment back in 2020, uh, not much really happened with the IRS this week. And uh, oh, yeah, by the way, if your client should have gotten a refund from unemployment that they paid tax on because they filed earlier in tax season and they haven't seen it yet, well, it may be about time to have to try to start contacting the IRS to see what happened to that refund. But that's about all we know from last week. Again, the IRS did not release anything really of any significance in the short week. So because of that, I'm going to take this week to take a look at something that came up in no other odd place, but as a Twitter thread this weekend. And that related to a discussion about the issues that arise with S-corporations and more appropriately, why S-corporations aren't the perfect entity type for everyone in every situation. Uh, the discussion kind of arose around a little issue that took a look at S-corporations. And it seems like there's a whole push out there for them to be used. And we know they are hugely popular. As entity type, you know, they have huge amount of popularity. A ton of S-corp returns are filed. And you begin to think that probably the major reason, 99 times out of 100, we have an S-corporation turns out to be because somebody wants to cut down on paying self-employment tax or FICA. Those are the key things going on. And I think that everybody has gotten so blinded by that first thing, deciding that it can work in cases where it really can't. But secondly, has been so blinded by that and getting, you know, maybe savings. And in some cases, I'm about for their average little S-corp. I'm not talking about here a John Edwards style situation where we're talking about Medicare tax on a few million. Remember John? Right, John Edwards, and then it was, uh, we also had essentially um, Newt Gingrich, right, also set up an S corporation uh, for mainly his consulting work and took most of his money out as distributions, along with John Edwards, who did that in a legal law firm structure. Uh, now, they both took out big salaries, quote unquote, at least what most of us that are big, but they took out the vast majority as distributions, which was way bigger. But in most cases, we're not talking about a John Edwards $3 million or whatever the number was back then, uh, you know, distribution, avoiding Medicare taxes. We're talking about somebody who is dodging a couple of grand, maybe in self-employment taxes or uh, Medicare taxes, maybe at both. And in many cases, even less than that. And I wonder sometimes if we just haven't had any conversation about the downsides of S because there are many downsides of S. In fact, I think more than a few of us in a discussion have come to the conclusion that if in fact this self-employment tax FICA differential went away next week, which by the way, the House back when they passed their version of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, we would have had identical treatment for self-employment tax and FICA for S corporations and partnerships. And the presumption was if that happened, you'd never see another S corporation formed. And I think there's a really, really good chance that's true, that in that scenario, it just wouldn't happen. And because it passed the House, 
And I want to remind people it passed the House as part of the TCJA. So that means that it was passed with only Republican votes. We know the Democrats have been worked up about this because that was mainly because of Newt. But in any event, the danger you always have is when Congress is always looking for revenue raisers to pay for whatever new tax gimmick or deal they want to put in the law. And this is on the list of something that they had previously considered that they actually have language drafted for. And at least in theory, it's something that if they had to, they could go there and find some money and sell it all as shutting down loopholes. So as I say, I get a little nervous about the SE tax bit. I'm just thinking at some point it's going to get shut down. And at that point, then we're going to maybe have a major problem with these S's. But let's talk about some of the big problems. Now, I had two threads on very specific issues here. The number one thread I had, I discussed, started immediately was how it's so easy for an S corporation to have its status terminated by various things happening. It is a super fragile structure that can fall apart with the least provocation. And in fact, if you take a look at private letter rulings, you're going to discover virtually every week we have multiple cases of S corporations asking the IRS to please, 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 you know, bless us and say that, uh, you know, yeah, yeah, we lost our status, but we're going to say it was inadvertent. And that's great, except you pay a really big fee in the, to the IRS for the user fee and even bigger set of fees to the professionals to walk that through. And we'll talk also about why are people asking for those anyway? Because, and I will agree, the IRS does not normally, you know, ever go to an S corp and say, hey, you're not a valid S status. They don't challenge that on exam. We don't see any cases really on that issue where the S status validity was challenged, which suggests strongly they aren't raising that on exam. So why in the world do we have all of these private letter rulings coming out all over the place regarding this issue? We'll talk about that. We'll also talk about other basic disadvantages of the S status that can render any FICA or self-employment tax savings, if you do it right, not worth the bother. And that's kind of the issue. Now, before I go further, somebody's going to say, oh, you know, you're saying it never, ever, ever, and you can't ever use one, et cetera, et cetera. And you'll tell me about certain cases that, okay, you might say it's okay. It's okay. I'm not saying you never use an S Corp. I have a couple of S Corp clients for very specific situations. And that's fine if everybody's been aware of the pros and cons of the S status. If everybody's happy with it, understand what happened, understand what's there. I mean, I remember back in the 86 Tax Act, uh, you know, we used to have a bunch of C corporations for professional entities. And frankly, at that point, those existing entities they didn't have a good way, and we'll talk about that because that's still a problem. There's not a good way to disincorporate them and make them into a non-corporate entity. So some of those have stayed around. And yes, we've still got some of those with no good way to get out of their corporate status. But certainly we wanna make sure that you've discussed with your clients the potential downsides of the S election. And the reason why is I remember a few years ago, um, and this goes a number of years back now, but I wouldn't be surprised that things are about the same because I don't think this is gonna change. Where Cameco put out a list of, in essence, things that led to claims against CPAs for tax malpractice. And one of the top things, very top things at the time 
was litigation or claims against the CPA for giving bad advice for entity selections. And this was at a time we still had, you know, the S Corp was being recommended more than anything else, which tells me there are a few more than a few occasions where the CPA was having a claim filed against them for having said, oh, you need to be an S Corp. And then something went wrong. And we'll talk about what can go wrong. And suddenly now the client's all upset about well, why are we an S Corp? And it cost me all this money. And how'd you blow this? And et cetera, et cetera. So we're going to talk about that, why it's there. So the first thing I want to talk about is C corporations who believe they are S corporations, otherwise known as inadvertent terminations. How does this happen? As I said, the IRS regularly issues private letter rulings. We've talked about them on these broadcasts in the past. We talked about a few recently where a corporation is asking the IRS for a holding that the termination, that whatever they did that fouled it up and clearly lost their S status was inadvertent and they can go back and be treated as if they had never lost the status. Now, remember, if you lose your S status, generally you're going to be treated as a C corporation. There is some question if you uh, fouled it up immediately upon trying to take an LLC that was a partnership and make an S election. I can say there that there's at least a valid argument if the documents were fouled up right at that point that you still have a partnership, which is probably a better result than having a C Corp. But in any event, we'll talk about those issues. But normally the problem is we're going to end up with a C Corp. And generally that's not considered a good result. May I say the number of C Corps that are formed these days in small closely held companies is way down. Now we can talk about whether with 1202, there shouldn't be more C Corps that have been formed, but nevertheless, it's just not happening. You know, and so the general, you know, the general knowledge and the general assumption out there, I think among most tax professionals has been that, no, there's no way a C Corp makes sense. Like I said, I, I think the problem is too often 1202 has been ignored. And it's not that 1202 means you make a C, you make a C Corp. I think it's still plenty of reasons why you probably don't want to be the C Corp in a lot of cases, but it does mean that 1202 could be, should be considered because if the future happens in a way where you would have had a $10 million gain that would have been not taxable had this thing been a C Corp, yeah, that's a liability problem coming at you. But nevertheless, we'll talk about that. That's not today's thing. Now, like I said, the first thing we're going to bring up here is why do we have all these notices? Why are all these letters? Because every time I mention these things, I'm going to get a bunch of response. I already got them on Twitter about the IRS has never questioned whether my clients are S Corp is valid or not. They've never done, they never even looked into this. There hasn't been the least time. And I've never heard of anybody else saying their client had their SS questioned by the IRS. And I agree. The IRS has not traditionally looked at this issue. I'm sure there are cases out there. I'm sure there are a couple of exams where it came up. But generally, the IRS doesn't look at this. But that begs the question. There are still a huge number of private letter rulings in this area. So if, in fact, there's no exposure to this, if, in fact, there's no risk, and I always tell people, don't ever assume that. If the IRS could have a slam dunk to kill the S status and there's a tax advantage in it, the mere fact that currently they're not doing it, they don't seem to be training agents to go after it, does not mean that can't change in the future and your client has a problem because if you've lost your S status six years ago with some transaction, uh, you're still a C Corp today, right? It doesn't magically come back and go away 
It's, yeah, if they figure out that six years ago you did something, or more importantly, they just read your operating agreement and discover that it doesn't, it blows it up, then we have a problem. So that's usually where we're going to see these due diligence reviews by potential buyers. The IRS is not your problem, but these due diligence peoples. I've mentioned on Twitter that I used to lecture every year at a state tax conference. And at that conference, one of the people that spoke every year was a person who was, I believe she was partner uh, first for a national firm and then with one of the big four uh, in a DC office and her job was S-Corps. Now you might wonder, well, you know, obviously, you know, it doesn't seem like, you know, I mean, I'm sure they have some, but it doesn't really seem like for most of the S-Corps would be working with the big four. But what she did generally was involved very heavily in due diligence reviews when one of their clients was looking to acquire an S-Corp and her team would go in and, you know, do the standard due diligence work. One of the things they would do is check the validity of their S-elections and consistently find that they weren't an S-Corp. And so that's where this whole thing came from. And as I said, tongue in cheek, uh, you know, she seemed to be doing pretty well for herself, <laughs> shall I say, uh, you know, by just going out and finding C-Corps that thought they were S and then collecting money off that. So I'm going to say, looks like she did pretty well by that. So I'm going to say that that's out there. And obviously the risk is they're going to ask if this, if these CPAs, accountants from outside came in and immediately spotted that this thing was not an S-Corp, that in fact, there were multiple classes of stock issued, whatever the problem was, they noticed it immediately. Uh, how'd you miss it? You know, why haven't you, my CPA told me about this in the past. And then you turn around because they're offering, you know, the sale doesn't go through unless this gets solved. And we need this expensive private letter link, pay the user fee, and then pay probably to have the big four firm walk it through because you're not going to trust, you know, not going to trust you now since you never noticed a problem to begin with. And these guys have walked so many through, it's not funny. Um, you know, you'll end up probably having to write a check to reimburse them for those fees. So the sale goes through. So potential bad news. Because as I said, the only way to fix a problem when we have this, if you have blown your S election, the only fix is to get an IRS private letter ruling. The IRS has the authority to determine that the termination was inadvertent, but it's not one of those things you can go to court and argue for. You have to have an IRS holding on this. Congress only said that yeah, if you lose your status, generally, you'd have to wait at least five years to reelect. And you're going to be subjected to the whole problems we have with the built-in gains tax. Because you have anything appreciated when you go back to that status, the built-in gains tax will apply. You'll probably have put together some earnings and profits in those C years. So you're also going to be exposed to the excess passive income tax potentially, which can really come back to bite you down the line if you sell off some but not all of the business. For instance, if it's one of those where crazily the real estate got stuck inside the business, which I've seen, uh, and the new buyer wants to run the business but can't afford to buy the building from you and you rent that back to them, that can get us into excess passive income problems. And after three years of excess passive income and our S corporation has E&P, uh, you don't have an S corp anymore. So there's all kinds of neat ways this happen. As we said, the big problem is the IRS charges are not insignificant user fee and you got to pay a professional to walk it through. And as I said, since you hadn't found it, then they have a real tack knack to want to pay the big four group who has done a ton of these and knows them inside and out. 
and charges for it. Yes, not going to be cheap. So let's talk about this. There are many ways to terminate the S status, but I want to talk about the ones we've seen most often in the rulings because we've talked about them on here. If you go back over the history of this, you know, when we've put these shows on, you know, you're probably going to find a number of these, you know, where we've talked about these various things. The one class of stock issue is a huge one, right? We got the one class of stock problems. Now, in an S corporation, you have to understand what a class of stock is. The one class of stock rule says every issued share of stock and if you're an LLC being taxed as an S-Corp, we're going to treat some sort of unit calculation for members' interest. To say each one of those has to have identical rights to distributions in standard good old operating distributions, so your state law dividends, and the same rights to distributions and liquidations so on a per share basis. And this is really, rights are the key here. And that's, that's what's going to happen, because you're going to discover we don't need a disproportionate distribution. All we need is an operating agreement or a you know corporate, you know corporate documents that would allow, in some way, shape, or form, or under some conditions, you know that have any possibility ever of happening, that would allow for there to be a distribution that violated these, and that you know the other shareholders that were shorted could sue to get it fixed, and that's your problem. Now, you know, the fact that no disproportionate distribution has ever taken place isn't relevant so long as the corporate documents allow for such a thing to take place. That's your problem. This is form wildly over substance. What do the documents say can happen? Not what the client has done, not what the company has done. What do the documents say can happen? If the documents allow under any conditions, under any situation, there could be a distribution where it's not on a per share basis, either for operating distributions or for uh, distributions made in liquidation. You don't have an escort. The minute, the minute you have a document that, lets, that would let that happen under any condition, you've blown your S election. Well, let's start with one that came up recently. The most recent one we talked about was a limited liability company that elected S status, but had 704B boilerplate language in the operating agreement. Now, 704B language is that language required uh, to qualify for substantial, econo substantial economic effect, you know, substantial economic effect. That, that, that's the key issue there. It's got to have, you know, we got to keep track of partners' capital per the 704B rules. And this is the killer. Distributions must be made, ultimate liquidation of anybody's interest must be made in accordance with those 704B capital accounts. Now, that's where we have problems. Those capital accounts and the rules for maintaining them are going to allow, at least under some situations with some cases, that there could be a distribution, you know, that would be required that would not be on a per share basis. Now, the problem here generally is that we're taking an LLC operating agreement that either counsel that drafted it didn't know it was going to make an S election, Council that drafted it doesn't understand S corporations and doesn't understand why this stuff is bad and we need this out of the boilerplate. Or third, and quite often the case, uh, the client j just decided that attorneys cost too much money, went down, got, got some sort of boilerplate document off the internet, downloaded it, or paid someplace to get a standard LLC document, which of course the standard document writes it under the partnership theory, 704B's in there, and suddenly we lose our S status. 
Now, in this case, the funny part was that they originally had a document that didn't have this problem, and then they later revised, back to revised twice, and two of both updates put language in that had this. So my guess is boilerplate snuck in. They may have changed counsel, whatever happens, but they changed, and so they got a new agreement put in there, and the new agreement had the boilerplate, killed the S-status. Other way we saw this, we talked about this one a few years back, you are allowed to have non-voting shares. Non-voting shares are not a problem. Remember, we're only worried about distribution. So even though legally under state law, you would probably find that your state would say that if you have voting and non-voting shares, your state corporate law would consider that two classes of stock. But the Internal Revenue Code does not consider that two classes of stock in the S context. That's considered a single class of stock as long as they have identical rights to distributions, you know, basically, operating distributions, and equal rights to every liquidating distribution. In this case, the problem was more boilerplate. When they added the, dot, added the information into the corporate agreements, right, updated it to allow the non-voting stock to be issued, so they had to create non-voting stock under state law, that standard boilerplate document simply said that the board of directors was allowed to declare dividends separately for each class that was a problem. Even though the board never did it, there was never a distribution made that was not the same to all classes. Didn't matter. As soon as that language went in the, went in the documents, the corporate governing documents, that allowed the board, if they decided to, to make different distributions, we lost our S status. And again, private letter ruling, pay for everything, all that kind of stuff. And it's important to note that, interesting enough, the IRS position, which recently we talked about that big one they put out to allow people to kind of self-correct some S problems, actual disproportionate distributions aren't a problem. Uh, well, the funny part is they're not a problem as long as they weren't allowed under the agreement. And nobody has gone out and now said, well, they're not allowed, but, you know, we're, we're, we're going to ignore that. As long as, you know, the parties that were shorted aren't giving up their rights. It wasn't part of a, some arrangement. Um, and, you know, and basically, and they understand that legally now they've got to make up the differentials, so they make it up, but then you have to pay some interest, whatever. I mean, the board's in trouble by doing that, something they weren't allowed to do by the agreement. IRS doesn't see that. And you'll note that rulings we have on that, and they kind of backed off, and now they pretty much said they won't issue such rulings. But back when they did, they never said, unlike a lot of these other rulings where they said, you know, well, you know, the status was terminated as of this date. You know, they, they said the company is concerned the status may have been terminated and they would rule if it had been terminated, then we're going to say it was inadvertent. So it's kind of funny in these cases how they never really said it was, but that, that was kind of unique in that scenario. Other problem we get is having ineligible shareholders. There is a very restrictive list of people that can be a shareholder of an S-Corp. Generally, U.S. citizens, U.S. residents, right? So non-resident aliens can't be a shareholder. Uh, decedent's estates, decedent of somebody who owned the shares. Uh, very limited set of trusts. Uh, grantor trust, 100%, 100% grantor, 100% one individual owned grantor trust. Those are fine, um, you know, but most other trusts don't count. The trusts that do count, QSST, ESBTs, we'll talk about that here in a second, right? 
but basically you can't. You can never have a partnership own an interest in an S-corp, and you can't have a corporation own an interest in an S-corp unless the corporation owns 100% of the S-corp, and it makes the S-election and makes a Q-sub election for that other S-corporation, all of which needs to take place. Well, therein lies our issue. So the problem is the corporation gets a ineligible shareholder. And quite often how that occurs is a lot of odd ways. Now, here's, let's talk about the first way. This, this one was kind of funny. And when I remember what I read, I thought well, this was the most work anybody ever went through to disqualify their S-corp. They put a provision in, I've got to assume it was in there, part of the estate plan and whoever was involved in drafting this part of it probably didn't really understand S-corps. So, or they understood, but didn't think it through. So in this case, the individual took his shares in the S corporation and transferred them to a single member LLC. Now, go back, well, I, I guess, you know, we've got double insulation is the theory. I don't know how much, I mean, I'm not a counsel, I'm not legal counsel, I'm not sure, but I'm not sure that really adds liability protection. Maybe they were thinking they're gonna do it for uh, some transfers, which I think might've been. My guess is we weren't told for sure, but we are told this was a grantor trust. There was a grantor trust, so he divided his interest. Part of it, part of the LLC interest, he continued to hold himself, and the other percentage got transferred to a grantor trust. Now, I'm suspecting this was not a revocable living trust, but was right, probably a basically a you know intentionally defective grantor trust, where the gift counted for estate tax purposes, but while he was alive, he was considered still to own the shares. Well, because he owned the shares, right? He owned, he, he was treated as owning the entire, he was treated essentially as owning 100% of the LLC because it was deemed to own the interest held by the grantor trust and he was deemed to own the interest, of course, held by himself. The problem is when he died, the grantor trust ceased to be a grantor trust and became a standard operating trust. And it would appear, I would guess, the way this was written, one that was not eligible to elect to be treated as part of the grantor's estate or at least treated as kind of combined with the estate for filing. Or, you know, I'm not, again, it's possible too that there's a little concern that we never really said in the code that that could work. Uh, like I said, the, the, the scene's estate qualifies as a holder and trust you transfer it to on death for two years work. But in any event, this all got missed. And so now the problem is they have a partnership, right? Because remember also, this grantor trust didn't own the S-Corp shares directly. It owned shares in an LLC, which then held the S-Corp. So it was holding it through a partnership. So even though arguably the trust could have held the S-Shares itself, it didn't. Like I said, I'm guessing there was an estate plan concept in there and they used this. They were trying to stick this inside of a, of a you know, some sort of LLC that would go ahead and, you know, they, they could then give these gifts of the minority interests and get these discounts, great, except income tax-wise, it set up a big problem. Obviously, they had to go back, they had to get this restructured and had to get it taken as a grantor, you know, that they could treat this as an inadvertent termination. I was a little bit interested. I'd love to have known the estate tax side of this case to understand exactly what happened. Uh, it was kind of interesting there. The other thing we run into is trust on the death of a shareholder. And in this case, it gets a little weird. Trusts, as I've said, can't generally hold shares, but if the shares go to a trust upon the death of the prior owner, 
then for two years, that trust can hold the shares, but it's exactly two years. Now, in theory, what that allows us to do under the law is we have two years to get those shares into the hands of something that could hold those S-Corp shares. So I'd want to transfer them to the heirs, you know, get them out into individuals' hands, potentially. But there are valid reasons why I would like to have those things in trust. And so this is part of what we're going to discuss here about, yes, there is a way to structure this so I can keep them in a trust and I can keep, I can make sure, therefore, protected from my uh, kids, uh, you know, good for nothing, gold digging spouse that we suspect they are, or protected from, you know, liability to some extent, you know, keep them from doing anything, you know, don't let them go sell the shares or do something like that. So I can control things in that realm. But I need the trust. Now, there are two types of trust that are, elect. if the elections made, are allowed to be able to make this election. And those are QSSTs and ESBTs, right? So let's talk about those particular groups of shareholders. Now, QSSTs and ESBTs are designed to provide options for trusts that are formed on death. You can use them for other purposes, but quite often I see them formed you know, on yet. The idea is we're going to transfer these shares into a trust. And at the end of the two years, we're going to have set the trust up so that it could make a QSST or an ESBT election by that date. And, you know, and we may not want to be QSST or ESBT until then, because that does impose some restrictions on the trust. So quite often they'll be designed to be terms that will take effect if the election's made. And those terms would then convert it over to a QSST or ESBT. Now, QSST generally can only have one beneficiary, uh, and that beneficiary has to get every distribution from the S Corp that comes out. Uh, that beneficiary has to be the only person that will receive any of the stock. If the stock is distributed during that person's lifetime or the trust is terminated, as well, if the stock's sold, they get the, you know, they get basically the money from selling the stock. What they can't do, though, is actually sell their own stock, right? You can make sure it goes to the next generation. ESBT allows the trust to actually hold funds inside it. Now, it pays at the highest rates, and it's, you know, it's not a great income tax deal, but it can be used for other purposes, especially when we're concerned and don't want the kid to get the money directly, or we are concerned and we want to be able to spread or sprinkle among different potential beneficiaries. There are reasons why we'll do that. But in either case, we need to make an election that needs to be valid by that date two years from date of death, right? And if you don't get that filed on time, the status is terminated because you have an ineligible shareholder that's holding shares in the entity, which is a bit of a problem, shall we say, at that point. And again, so what we end up doing is these have often gotten overlooked. It's amazing how many of these I've seen where the trust never made the QSST, or I should say the heir didn't make the QSST election, or the trustee didn't make the ESBT election, and now they're asking the IRS to give a benefit retroactively and saying, yeah, that, that was inadvertent, can we get it fixed? As I said, I think that happens an awful lot because you would think you drafted a estate planning document. You have this set up so the trust can clearly be an ESBT or a QSST. Conceptually, since you want the S corporation around and you've gone through the work of setting it up so it could trigger QSST and ESP status, you would think that that was a whole idea, right? But apparently somehow that never gets communicated. 
Now, I suspect in some cases, various things happen. Number one, one issue we have lots of times with estate planning documents is, you know, you want to get somebody experienced to draft your estate planning documents. And so let, you know, so let's say you're age 50 at this point, which is not super old yet, shall we say, uh, but it's old enough. You start thinking about, well, maybe I need to get my estate planning stuff in tune. You've gotten now enough earnings and stuff. So you get that done and you don't want to go hire some 30 year old attorney. So you go out and you find this guy who is age, you know, 62, who has been doing this for years, did all these people get these recommendations. They draft your estate plan. Okay, that's great, but they're 12 years older than you. Now, all things being equal, right? There's a reasonable chance that person will die before the deceit, before the person who has the estate plan written. And let's assume that that estate plan, therefore, you know, that attorney won't be there to remind everybody what they're supposed to do. Secondly, remember, this is the estate. That means that the person that died, who may have been the person that, you know, worked with the attorney, got this set up. Well, they're not there to keep the attorney on staff and the heirs may decide that attorney charges too much and I don't like him or her. So they dump the attorney. Maybe they bring in a different one who's less expensive or maybe they just decide to do it on their own. In any event, these elections get missed. Consistently, they get missed. Failing to make that QSST election is a big problem. If the trust is not designed to be able to be a QSST or SBT, then our problem becomes we need to get the shares out of there in the two years. And if the um, heirs start fighting, it may not be possible to get the shares out of there after two years. And we again lose our status, which is a problem we get to, right, as we have it. Also, this one I see less often. I don't see this PLR, but I remember a court case a couple of years ago uh, where a shareholder fight can lead to termination of the status. What happens is if you don't have some documents that lets the corporation immediately redeem, have an immediate call, right, to pull back in, right, any shares that get held by a disqualified entity, you know, and require that if you're going to transfer, before you transfer to a disqualified entity, whether you're going to sell or whatever, you have to offer it up to the corporation, potentially on the same terms, whatever. If that's not in there, because again, they want to pay for an attorney, didn't get it done, or they ignored that or waived it somehow, um, the shareholder can form a new corporation, transfer a share there, and then suddenly your S election's blown, right? And that has happened. Yes, people get mad and just want revenge. They're mad at their brothers or sisters, and they do this. The one case I remember from a number of years ago was it was just that. One sister was kind of, you know, didn't get along with her brother and sister. Uh, she was kind of kicked out of the corporation, but she still had some shares, right? They weren't going to redeem her. So she decided to get even and she just formed a C Corp and transferred her shares to that. And she really didn't care what it did to her. She just cared that it made her brother and sister suffer. So yeah, we've seen that sort of fight. That's where it gets bad. Also, and this is one that I see tax professionals foul up on multiple times. If you have a corporation that's S now, but had ever been C in the past, and it has any remaining earnings and profits, right? EMP, accumulated earnings and profits in the corporation, uh, which it very, very well has, unless you paid out as a dividend, it probably did when you did the conversion. And that thing has what's called excess passive income. It has it for three straight years. And like interest counts, dividend counts, uh, rentals, if there's not enough activity count. There's a lot of ways people get in this 
and get that excess passive income. If that goes on for three years, you don't have an S. And what's scary is in multiple occasions, I have inherited S corps and discovered that they're not an S corp. It's got excess passive income, right? It has been an S corp for a while. And that leads to a whole bunch of messes because probably we end up with a personal holding company as a C corp, which is a whole nother set of problems, depending upon what this was. And how this ends up happening quite often is you had an operating company that, as I said, the craziness there of somehow real estate gets in there. And so they have it, or it's an operating company, they sold it, but they decided to leave the money in there and invest it. And so they get lots of interest and dividends. Well, that kind of excess passive income inside the corp, that creates a problem. And the reason why it laws there, I mean, it's kind of obvious. The idea is that if we liquidate this corporation, we're probably gonna pay a big tax because we operate as a C corp during the C years when it earned money and has earnings and profits. We obviously didn't distribute them out and, you know, and basically we didn't get any extra basis for the income in those years. So there might be a temptation to keep the S corp around rather than pay that big gain on liquidating it. And because of that, you know, we end up with this problem. The other way we get it is they have the operating business, they sell it off. However, because the real estate's in the company, they somehow left in the corporation because it's just like a partnership. So what's the problem? Well, now they're going to lease that real estate on a triple net lease to the buyer because the buyer couldn't afford to buy the real estate. And now suddenly we have excess passive income. So that's problem. But let's talk about the other warts that exist for S corporations that again, doesn't mean you don't form one, but it means you better have considered these, right? Let's talk about some of those stat, some of those problems that even if you don't lose your S status can still cause you issues. The big one is while you can incorporate tax-free under 351 if you meet the 80% control test, there is no way to disincorporate this entity without meeting, you know, that essence, we, we can't take this entity out of S status or take it out of corporate status to a non-corporate entity. Now, why might we want to do that? Let's say that we had two operating entities, two operating businesses. We get those, two, you know, and they're, they're run by two guys who've been longtime friends. They thought, hey, we'll just get together. We'll take our two CPA firms. We'll combine them. And hey, we're going to do this as an S Corp too. So we'll put together an S Corp. And we'll take our, our current C, you know, Schedule Cs and we'll combine them and we'll become an S Corp, right? Well, then you discover about three months in that you cannot stand this person. You, you and your buddy may be great buddies if you're out there, you know, I don't know, out there at the game you know, doing whatever, going to the football game, and you can do all those things and have all those things and, you know, be, be out to parties and do that stuff, great. But you guys in a business just doesn't work. And I've seen that multiple times and now you want to split it up. Well, the problem is you probably contributed the goodwill to the new combined corporation because you probably had agreements made as shareholders and you probably did employment agreements. You didn't want to combine and then if this didn't work out, you know, the other guy could just go rob all your clients, do these other things. So you probably had non-compete agreements and you probably had various restrictions and the corporation and there are, and also as a corporate shareholder, you do have some duty of, you know, fidelity to the corporation. So you probably by going in there have transferred in those intangibles to the corporation and we're using them. When we try to split this thing up and give you back your intangible, that's a taxable gain. Because while it could go in tax-free, it can't come out tax-free. 
And that's true even if the Goodwill hasn't gone up a dollar uh, since you put it in. Right? It doesn't matter. Uh, doesn't matter that that appreciation all took place before the incorporation. You're still going to pay tax because, again, you got no tax coming in, but carryover basis. So that's a problem. A partnership, I can easily distribute assets out to partners and in most cases won't have to worry about triggering any sort of gains. There are some exceptions, but in a case I just, like the case I just mentioned, I could easily take those two people and just send them away, give them their goodwill and not have any problem, right? They, they take any intangibles with them, take the other stuff with them and we're good. So that, that's kind of how it would work. Now, these intangible assets, they can be easily transferred upon incorporation. And as I said, even if it's not gone up $1, we still got this problem. Um, the other big problem, we don't have anything equivalent to 743B basis adjustments when we have interests are purchased or inherited. If a 754 election is in place for, the, uh, for a partnership, you're allowed to make this basis adjustment where those who inherit the property or those who purchase the interest are able to take advantage of the extra basis, right? Which creates some neat things. The problem is, first thing is just straight up, they don't get any current value of the basis, which they would have been a partnership. So yeah, they're saving SE tax now, but they're paying, they're paying 37, you know, they're basically paying, let's say 37% if they're not actually participating, uh, but let's say 29.6. So they're pay, so they're not paying Medicare tax, but paying 29.6% on additional income that they wouldn't have had to pay tax on at all because of the extra basis would have increased their share of depreciation and the like. Yeah, that, that can be bad. And the other big problem we see in a case like this, when somebody dies, their heirs inherit the stock, the stock gets a step up in basis. Now, let's say though that inside the corporation, now there's goodwill and other things. So there's a million dollars worth of gain inherent in the corporate, you know, based on the basis of corporate assets versus its fair market value. Now that additional million dollars worth of value will be reflected in the stock. Okay, that's great. But here's your problem. It's not reflected inside the corporation. Now let's say that we've got all of these assets and let's say that we can't sell them all to one person. It's taking a while to liquidate this corporation. If I can't liquidate the corporation in the year in which I have all the gains, or at least the vast majority of the gains, when I go ahead and do this, I will probably have a big gain in the year I, okay, the big gain the year we sell the assets. If the corporation is still around at the end of that year, we add that gain to the basis of the stock, which we would either way. But the problem is I've now effectively double counted that increase that was there when dad died. Right. Part of it was in my basis because it was the inherited stock. But the other side of that is that I've now jumped the basis again. Now, I don't have, don't have cash to pay for both of those. So when I actually liquidate and we distribute the cash, I'm going to get far less than my basis. And that's going to be a capital loss. Now, that's a huge problem because the big capital gains or 1231 gains treated as capital, those all occurred in the prior year. And I pay tax on those. Now, this year, I don't have anything that's going to generate big losses like that or big gains. So I'm going to have only that loss on the sale of the S-Corp, huge number, and I'll be picking that up at three grand a year. And that, that's a potential big problem because I can't do the basis adjustment I did in the partnership. Okay. Also, no special allocations are allowed. 
Now, this is a problem because what tends to happen is, um, you know, professionals especially want provisions that base what each professional gets based on his or her production, right? You know, that, that, that issue where, you know, I'm going to look at what did I bring in in fees? What are my expenses? And that's how much I should get, right? That, 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 that's what I earned. And so in a lot of cases, these, these professional partnerships are more like a bunch of loosely associated, you know, proprietorships. And when they form an escort because they want to save FICA, quote unquote, they still want that result. And the problem is I can't really get to that result except to pay salaries, some sort of bonus structure that's going to pay extra to this guy because he earned more than average. And it's, I'm going to have to do some sort of structure of that. So at least to some extent, play bonuses to settle out the differences. And the problem is that obviously bonuses will be subject to FICA. There's no other way around it. I can't do anything that looks like a distribution that's not, you know, the, a right to a disproportionate distribution is going to kill my election. So I have to worry about doing this bonus. And, you know, again, their whole point was claiming that they wanted this to save FICA. And obviously that's a problem. But even a bigger problem is if you do do this to save FICA, and that's the theory you always hear, great. But you need a good reason why the earnings aren't all coming from the services of the shareholders. If you want to obtain any FICA or Medicare savings, if I am a one-man CPA firm, right? I have no staff. I don't. I have very, very minimal investment in equipment, right? I got, got the same computer I got back in 2011 because that version of Excel still runs just fine. And my tax software actually still runs decently on that. So why do I care? You know, I, I haven't done anything. So I have no investment in equipment, nothing much going on. I form an S corporation. I'm going to have a devil of a time justifying taking a salary that's not virtually every dollar it earns because every dollar being generated is being generated by my actions. Now, if there's, let's say there is a lot of equipment. So let's talk about something like a, um, if we were talking about running a, let's say, I guess just trying to think of the right thing there. Well, you know, a lot of dental practices need a lot of equipment. Vet practices need a lot of equipment. Radiologists spend a lot of money on equipment. You know, those things, and maybe I can justify a part of the return based on my return on capital invested. But still, if I'm looking at, let's say, an orthopedic surgeon, yes, they have big, heavy tools, but you still know that a huge proportion of those earnings are being generated by the doc. You know, th those tools by themselves won't generate much of any earnings. So bottom line, you know, you really got to be careful that you really have the FICA savings you're looking for. And I think all too often, in order to justify all this stuff, people go way beyond what's allowed on any sort of reduction of salary to make this work and get the ridiculous cases as we had with, was it David with Watson case? Was the CPA who, you know, basically was paying his staff in the six figures. He owned the whole thing, but he was taking out only a $25,000 salary. Yeah, that didn't work. Things like that are the problems here, okay? We also have problems bringing in new equity holders in an S structure. And this goes back to that one class of stock problem, right? I can't have a second class of stock to bring in new equity holders. So I can't give people stock like I could interest in a partnership. In a partnership, I have lots of options. I could even have an option to issue a profits only interest. So they don't get any of the existing value of the firm. 
they rather get the value only of you know what they earn out. I mean, I can write these things as fancy as I want. When we're talking about a S corporation, I can't do that very well. And that creates problems. Now, as I said, I'm not saying that S corporations never make sense. I'm not saying you never should form an S. But I am saying somebody better have considered all of the warts rather than simply only consider does it save FICA and self-employment tax. Because when you're going to get in trouble is when the warts come back to bite. And nobody ever mentioned that up front. Right. That could be a huge problem if you never thought about it. And like I say, the 1202 deal, if this business could have been a 1202 C Corp and it turns out that they get a buyer and there's going to be this like $8 million gain that the shareholder is going to have, that gain had been fully non-taxable to the shareholder. Had you not had the, you know, had you decided to do this as a C Corp instead of an S Corp. But now you got a problem because as an S Corp, you can't do 1202. And that obviously could get one involved in a, and the, the bad thing in that case is there's an obvious way to compute the damages in that scenario. So again, big problem that we look at. As I said, hopefully this coming week, the IRS will actually release something that's worth talking about aside from saying, yeah, don't forget they, they did finally get all the, all the refunds supposedly paid out for the unemployment. So again, if you got, if I didn't get that, remember to go check. But aside from that, they really didn't say much this week. And neither did they really have any much in the way of court cases. They were mainly jurisdictional things about somebody filed too late and all those sorts of things. So if you have anything really happen this week, hopefully next week will be better. If you have any questions, you can email me, edzollers at currentfortexdevelopments.com. Uh, I also, as I say, do take a look at the discussions on the connect groups for Arizona, New Jersey, Minnesota, uh, Illinois, and Washington. So if anything comes there, I'll take a look at posts there. And also do keep an eye on what goes on on the Idaho board. So keep your eyes there. Otherwise, have a good week. And we'll see you back here next week when, as I said, hopefully we have some developments in the areas of current federal tax developments.